Welcome to the O'Reilly Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Anderson, Editor for Infrastructure and Operations. This podcast is brought to you by NGINX. I'm here today with James Bond, Cloud Chief Technology Officer at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, and author of the Enterprise Cloud with O'Reilly, and we're talking about trends in enterprise cloud computing. Welcome to the show, James. Thank you. So let's talk briefly about your background. In particular, what led you to write this book about enterprise cloud? So in my day-to-day duties at uh, HP, we're all constantly asked by customers how to actually move from traditional IT to cloud. I think everyone's understanding the benefits of cloud and all the definitions of cloud for the most part, but they wanted a real-world tangible advice or best practices, as we call it, on how to actually conduct and perform that transition. Great. So for a while now, there's been a lot of pressure on companies to move all their applications to the cloud. Uh, Why is that? Well, you know, one of the original reasons for cloud, I think, and possibly a misnomer too, is that they're going to immediately save money. And while that could be a long-term goal and is achievable, that's that's the one I will caution everybody on right off the gate. But one of the, the best reason is to accelerate the provisioning or deployment of your IT services, whether that's storage or virtual machines or, or you know, applications out into the cloud or into even to your legacy data center. That automation and um, cloud label enables you to greatly accelerate that so that you're provisioning through services in minutes, not weeks or months. So, so some people may go into it with the idea of, of ultimately reducing operational costs. Correct. And so while you will be able to reduce costs, depending on the form of cloud that you pick, and how, how much data and applications you're trying to move to the cloud, you may have an upfront cost to build the cloud or to perform the migration. And uh, we'll talk about later, even rewrite some of your applications. So that initial burst of expenses, depending on what form of cloud you have, is something you have to predict and prepare for. Uh, in the long run, you will end up saving money in, in almost every scenario you do uh, in the long run. But again, initially, there may be an impact to start the transition. I see. So what are the real benefits to migrating applications to the cloud in your perspective? So first and foremost is the agility to use one or more clouds. And I'm going to call those cloud providers throughout this conversation. So a cloud provider could be your traditional uh, virtual machines that you have in your data center. It it could be traditional storage and a, a public or private cloud that you subscribe to. So that idea of having multiple cloud providers allows you to choose the best price and the best fit uh, for each of your applications. Some applications are better served by being posted on a public cloud provider. Some applications and data are best served being hosted internally. So getting that flexibility to do that is is probably the number one reason. And then number two, the, the IT departments have to stop thinking about themselves as a cost factor to the business. That's kind of an old way of thinking in, in most businesses. Instead, the IT departments need to be effectively become a service provider to their own community, whether that's your end customer or that's your internal business departments. They need to actually prove their benefit and value, and you literally can now monetize that. And instead of having just to say that IT is a percentage of our cost and we have to live with it and live within those budgets, that mentality is is kind of uh, what we call legacy IT. I see. So so IT needs to change its focus on providing value instead of just being a cost center. Um, what is the perspective from management? I mean, what, what are some strategies for management to actually make this a, a realistic? Thing? So what, one of the good ways to do this is to think of applications or, or, biz, or lines of business 
So maybe it's the accounting system um, or the billing system that you might use to your company. Take each business function and calculate the cost that it currently costs you to do this, both in equipment and, and software and support. And then if you think about the new way of doing IT, which is you now have a variety of cloud providers and a variety of choices, you have to just take that account and basically form a budget for each one. And you're going to realize that you can probably eliminate a lot of costs or justify the fact that you're going to move to another cloud provider because you're going to come up with a whole new piece of software. You're going to come up with a whole new um, uh, paradigm in how you service that application. Honestly, most people take IT departments and it's one big giant budget and it has X number of staff and X number of um, resources internal into the data center. You've got to break that up. You've got to justify it and to the business so that the business sees that value and can calculate that value on a per application basis or a per business line basis. So with, with the clients that you've worked with, you know, large companies that are, are, are moving things to the cloud, what are some common anti-patterns anti that you're seeing? Um, sure. Uh, yeah. So one of them, the most majority one is the what I call the legacy thinking. The legacy process and concepts that an IT operation will use have to change. For example, the security department uh, or security group would often approve every application or every new server or, or every new network that gets deployed inside of a data center. And as a manual uh, accreditation process, some companies more formal than others, but that idea it does, is, goes against the idea of automating and, and orchestrating um, a cloud offering, in which case speed to market is your friend. You want to be able to go quickly deploy new servers, quickly automatically deploy new applications on demand or what we call self-service. And you can't pause for the security team to go do an assessment when, honestly, your virtual machines and your app could deploy in minutes at 3 o'clock in the morning. What IT, what security guy wants to stand awake at 3 in the morning and manually bless it, which would take days. So the idea of, of automation and cloud often conflict with legacy IT thinking. So, so the number one thing is, is they have to reconsider how they govern, how they certify, how they operate everything. Um, in the old IT. So that business process, it's not even a technical issue because that's actually fairly easy. It's the business processes that have to be re rethought. So this is, this is a, the perspective of business processes has to change. Is there also uh, a change of mindset on the part of the practitioners, the, you know, the people actually running the systems? Well, correct. Uh, so, you know, there's varying different skill sets. So um, sometimes we have to work with customers and they say, what do I do with my current IT staff or how do I improve their skill set? So there is a level of skill change and, and, and mentality that will change with the IT staff. There are also what we call, we want people to be application or, or business line focused. So an example I'll use is if you're an insurance company, you want to try to shift your IT staff so that they are focusing on insurance related business practices and applications and customer service. And frankly, the commodity IT things like staging a new server, deploying a new network switch, those are kind of frankly commodities that a cloud and automation can do automatically through, through varying means and in cloud providers. Um, and you should probably decide you know, to redeploy your IT staff, have less generic IT folks racking and stacking servers, focus on your customers and your applications that make your company unique. So what are the benefits to, to maintaining your own data centers in this day and age when people are talking a lot about moving everything to say public cloud? Sure. Well, first and foremost, there, we realize that companies have an investment in their data centers and, and their staff as well. So one of the biggest ones, if you're talking to, say, a CFO, is the financial officer is going to be concerned with depreciating the assets that you already have. 
So there is a, the normal process would be to don't go and say, I'm going to move everything to a cloud immediately. Larger companies just can't move everything that quickly, and, and it would be very disruptive if they did. So one example would be possibly to start with a new Greenfield cloud or maybe even a public cloud provider. Start moving certain workloads to the cloud. Email is usually a low-hanging fruit that's pretty easy to move. Um, maybe an accounting software or something like that. Um, and then you have to assess what other applications you want to move over and how fast you want to move them over. Uh, a lot of times we tell people that, you know, if you have an average three to five year life cycle for replacing hardware in your data center, that's a good time to consider not replacing the hardware when its life cycles up and start deciding whether that application should have moved or could move to the cloud. That way you don't have, you finally stop the cycle of spending capital money every five years. Uh, so on, on the topic of private cloud, what are the latest trends that you're seeing? In particular, is OpenStack living up to the hype? So, so first, the first part of the question, private cloud. So, you know, I, I, have always, I said it in the book as well, and uh, it's still, still reality today, which is that many customers will think of cloud and they'll think of a public cloud provider. And then after we get, start consulting with them and we get into the details of what they're trying to do, we realize that not everything and not every application or data is suitable for a public cloud or a best fit. Therefore, private cloud can't be understated. And in fact, the results are that more people go with private cloud than they do with public cloud. And a lot of them do both, which we're gonna call hybrid, and we're gonna to get to that later. But the idea of having somewhere closed in private, somewhere closed in public is the norm. OpenStack is a basically mostly used for private clouds right now. There are some cloud providers that use OpenStack in a public cloud configuration. OpenStack being an open source community project means that there are many different companies providing code and contributions. And they release a new version of OpenStack approximately every six months. And they go by the, based on the alphabet. We won't get too far into that. But the reality is, is that I would say as of last year, OpenStack is now suitable for production. There was a period of time here prior to say 2015 where I would never have recommended putting OpenStack in a production environment because it just wasn't mature enough yet. Missing some really key features. It didn't have all the security controls you'd want to put in. It didn't scale fast enough or, hard or uh, light enough. So I think we've, we've gotten past those points now and, and the product is now it's certainly stable. It's much more mature. But realize that when you go with OpenStack, you are essentially committing to opening, uh, or excuse me, upgrading your cloud management software stack, uh, not necessarily every six months as, as fast as they release it, but you will have to continually upgrade it. And so it's not a static thing that you install at once and expect to survive on that. There's gonna be constant upgrades. And that's a lot of work for some people. So to close that out for OpenStack, that's why there are distributions of OpenStack that come from different manufacturers, HP being one of them, where we do that homework. We take care of integrating the newest versions of all the modules, test them and integrate them. We add enhancements to them to either fix or patch some weaknesses they might've had. And therefore we give you a path to upgrade smoothly rather than everyone trying to upgrade the 27 modules on their own every six months. So those aftermarket or, or third-party uh, distributions of OpenStack, it, just like it happened, this is the same thing that happened with Linux you know, years ago. There were very many, many different distributions of Linux that are frankly better than the core product by itself. Nice. And OpenStack is just, is just like that. Hmm. So, so you mentioned hybrid cloud earlier. Let's, let's dive into that. And I, I think one way to transition might be to ask you to describe cloud brokering. Sure, sure. So the ideas of, of 
it really, really was never a situation where a company chooses one cloud provider and, and that's going to meet all of their needs. I don't know that that was never really the intent and it's not realistic in many cases. So the idea of having multiple cloud providers is realistic and the larger the company, the more likely there's going to be multiple cloud providers. So maybe you choose to say Amazon for your public websites. Maybe you'll choose Microsoft's Azure public cloud for the database platform. Um, or maybe their uh, financial systems that they have online. Maybe you use salesforce.com, and by the way, I don't work for any of these companies, but <laughs> maybe you use salesforce.com for your uh, sales um, tracking. So they're right there, I just named three cloud providers that very commonly people use. And managing those providers means that you would have to go into each provider's web console, configure their workloads and applications, and they have a different way of doing security. They have a different way of doing billing and then tracking and logging than the other provider. And so you have to go in and out of all these consoles and then heaven forbid you want to integrate everything to so that your IT department and that your users could see all of your applications across all of the cloud providers. That's a very tough thing to pull off when you have many, many different providers. So the concept of cloud broker means that it's a cloud management platform offered by many different companies. And that gives you a single view to order cloud services, to track the billing and the operational status. And you may or may not know that there are one or 10 cloud providers behind the scenes. You place an order, it decides based on your, your criteria what cloud provider you want to go to, or you could manually choose that. And effectively, you've, you've obfuscated the number of cloud providers below the scenes. And then maybe down the road, you have 20 cloud providers. You know, who knows what, what the future holds. I hmm. uh, I imagine that has some strong architectural implications um, to to make you know to make a system that could switch yeah. between those providers. That's that's a little bit of an understatement, and, and the reason it is, thank you, for, thank you for emphasizing that. So one of the biggest uh, I would say mistakes in cloud brokering is for an individual company, organization, or enterprise to try to create their own cloud brokering management system. I have many have tried. You will spend millions upon millions of dollars and never be done with it because as fast as you try to add features, you've got to add different cloud providers who constantly add and change their features. It is, I gotta say it is beyond what a normal enterprise company should be dealing with. If you're that insurance company example I used earlier, if you're an insurance company, why are you dealing with the cloud brokering platform and trying to write your own? Go buy one from the, go evaluate and buy the uh, cloud broker from one of the software providers that has this they're responsible for constantly keeping up with uh, programming changes or API changes at each cloud provider. They're responsible for learning how the broker provisions into Azure or provisions into uh, Amazon or even your local uh, data center. The broker takes care of that. You don't want to be in that business. And so that's really where the architecture really does is key because it's, it's got to be modular. When you order a virtual machine, technically you don't know or care which cloud provider it goes to. Uh, you know, on a very 10,000 foot level. That last minute, that last mile, as we call it, where the decision's made to go to say Amazon, then the cloud broker translates the code to says create virtual machine into Amazon's API and then sends the commands down to Amazon. And if you had chosen Azure, it would have shooted over to a different API and that would have been the Azure connector. So it is a very structured uh, environment. And, and again, well beyond what I recommend any company take over. Unless you are the cloud broker software manufacturer, it's just not cost effective to try to keep up with the, the market uh, as an individual enterprise. Interesting. Well, this is probably a good moment to turn to public cloud. 
so as much excitement as there is around public cloud, there's probably a lot of anxiety for a lot of companies too, particularly those with security concerns. Uh, I'm curious, what other concerns do companies have with, with public cloud? Sure. So security has always been, you know, one of the, like, uh, you know, mis, 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 misinterpreted, I guess is the right word, hmm. where they assume public clouds are less secure. That, that assumption that some people have that moving the public cloud means your data is less secure or is public in any way. Now, that's not really true. It never really has been true. Um, the pub, all the public cloud providers are very, very cognizant of security, possibly more so than any internal single company could even afford to secure. Think about it. Their, their, their bread and butter it relies on their security and their reliability. They have more security experts than any one company could ever afford to hire. So there really is a focus there. Now, the way to configure the security might be a little different, each, but each cloud provider's portal has different features. Each one is configured a little differently, but, and so you have to plan it very carefully. Um, however, there are certain decisions that could be made that could say, you know what, I've got some data that is just so important to my company or my customers that I just can't risk it. You know, and, and, and while there has never been a known public cloud provider that has been exploited, it could happen. And so some people just feel more comfortable with having the data back at their old data center and under their own quote unquote foot. So, you know, we totally understand that, but I just want to make sure that we just, we dismiss the idea that public cloud is any less secure. I could argue that I could make a public cloud just as secure, if not more than a private cloud if done properly. So that's the biggest one about public cloud is to get past that anxiety, that anxiety. And then you're, then you're deciding, now you decide your public clouds based on other criteria, such as costs. Some, some cloud providers have more hidden costs than others, such as bandwidth and transaction fees that aren't necessarily known up front um, because you don't necessarily know how much bandwidth you're going to use. So you get a surprise bill in the, in the third month when you go into production that you didn't experience when you were just developing your software. So the, 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 choosing a cloud provider does become important. But again, security is really not an issue in all the major cloud providers at this point. I see. Uh, so I wanted to, to shift the conversation now to some of the, the emerging trends. Um, arguably, microservices is, is SOA with a new face, perhaps. But, but I'd be curious to talk about microservices uh, in relation to enterprise organizations with lots of legacy systems. Um, sure. Are you are you seeing a lot of microservices being being treated seriously among very large companies? Absolutely. So the first thing we should probably say is that you know when you talk about cloud, most people consider cloud to be virtual machine based. It means I deploy a virtual machine with with a certain operating system, and I can deploy as many of those as I need to in the cloud, and then load my applications on them. The reality is is that that is the bridge te bridging technique, or the, the really the old technique to move virtual machines around and host them in a public cloud versus internal to your data center. All you've really done is you've just shifted the, the application and moved it somewhere else, but you're not truly getting the benefits of cloud. They're not nearly as scalable, they're not nearly as resilient as a what I'll call a cloud native application is. So a cloud native application, in a general terms, it takes advantage of the cloud. But one of the key things that a cloud native application often uses is what we call microservices. So a good example of microservice would be that instead of having one big monolithic database server that might be clustered in your internal data center, and then you have a couple of front-end web servers that you can load balance. That's a traditional web application, and you know what we call the internet generation. When apps were first loaded to the internet, that was fairly common, and still is. 
that's considered an old-fashioned technique for programming, and for that's not really cloud-native. Even if you host it on the cloud, you're not really using all the tools that are available to you. A microservice version of that same software solution would be, instead of one or two clustered database servers, you would use a different brand and different manufacturer of the software, and that database may have maybe spread over 100 different smaller computer nodes. Those 100 database nodes each share a portion or replicate a portion of the data, and that data being replicated, they can automatically know how to spawn new instances of themselves when you need more capacity. They know how to shut down themselves when you don't need the extra capacity or redundancy. So it is much more flexible and scale up and scale out than a traditional database. Um, when it comes to the application side of that same scenario, you wouldn't just put one web server or one application server, even if it's load balanced. You would actually put each server or node that was out there would have many, many microservices, dozens if not hundreds of microservices. And microservices are simply small applets, small portions of your application that are spun up. A good example would be uh, if you have a, a job that needs to run every hour or two that collects data or that summarizes something or shoots out an invoice, does that application or sub-module need to run 24 hours a day on every server? Possibly not. A microservice can start and stop in, in literally milliseconds um, when only when needed. So now you have many, many modules automatically starting and stopping and expanding when they need to, again, being dynamic. And that's just something an old-fashioned application can't do. So microservices are significant. Um, I would say that any cloud-native app that is being written now or will be in the next few years, uh, you know, can't predict 10 years ahead, but certainly in the next five, are going to be microservices as a core function or architecture, and then they're going to use containers, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that now. So uh, containerization is super hot right now, uh, and people in greenfield environments strongly prefer um, building the environment with with containers in it. Uh, are you seeing, you know, similar to microservices? Are you seeing widespread adoption of containers in the enterprise? Yeah, yes, correct. So uh, as we mentioned with the VMware, with uh, excuse me, with uh, virtual machines, um, that's a bridge to get you to move from one data center, and you can move your virtual machines to the cloud. So containers, when they first were came, first were announced and came out, and Docker being one of the biggest open source container projects out there right now. A lot of people use Docker to attempt, to attempt to essentially bundle up their application, put it in a container, and then deploy it to the cloud. So that's okay. It's another bridging technique to use to get you to cloud. But if you wrote a proper cloud-native application that you would start Greenfield, as you said, brand new, and this is what most people are doing. They're deciding that my legacy apps are over here, and I'm going to try, attempt to move them to cloud but I'm really going to focus on my core business and I'm going to rewrite those apps. Those new applications are definitely going to use microservices and the containers in most cases. And, and what that really does is a container can contain multiple applets, multiple microservices, and by containerizing them, essentially you are using a smaller, more granular chunk of computing instead of a virtual machine, which is fairly large and, and slow to boot up and boot, turn down and shut down and boot up. A container, you don't have to boot the entire operating system. You just literally boot the container engine, and you can start and stop a container that contains an application in microseconds. So, and so therefore, it's much more agile, again, as mentioned. That, that's the whole point of microservices. So containers is a technique used for cloud native and a technique used to basically um, package up your microservices. And then more importantly, 
because you, you can use uh, containers, you can now replicate those containers to other servers, um, even across this data center or even across the world, uh, even across cloud providers. You can have an application that spans multiple cloud providers um, using container technologies. And so it's, it's going to be huge. It's, it's already huge, but we haven't even seen the beginning of this yet. I'd say there's probably less than 10% penetration of containers and microservices right now. But it is the ongoing, it is the goal going forward for most enterprises, and it is the new architecture for which programmers should be writing their applications. Mm. Well, I remember uh, visiting DockerCon a few weeks ago, and and in the keynote, Ben Golub said that a big push lately has been people Dockerizing legacy applications. So it does seem to be something we're starting to see as more yeah. widespread phenomenon. Um, a question for you about cloud native. So this is a term uh, a lot of people are using lately. I'm curious from your perspective, what is it and how can someone learn more about it? Because it, it seems like it's a, it's a key challenge to smart cloud strategy. Sure, absolutely. So at a high level, cloud native means an application written for the cloud um, to take advantage of the cloud. And of course, that means there's many characteristics and ways to word that. Um, the words that I like to use, um, and if, if you look up that word cloud native, you'll get varying definitions online. But the ones I like to use is that it's an application that is resilient. It is scale out, not scale up, because scale up is a legacy technique. And um, I, I talk about that in the book. And it is essentially written for automation. It is written to be automatically deployed. It is written to auto scale itself. Um, so it's aware of itself and as far as whether it needs to spawn new instances of itself for, for capacity, if it needs to retract because it's being utilized less. So a cloud native app in general, you leverages the cloud correctly and was written for it. Just moving a virtual machine to the cloud is not cloud native. Just containerizing a legacy app, as we just mentioned, is not technically cloud native. A cloud native, you know, has many characteristics. There is a, um, it's in the book, but there's a, there's a, there are 12 official characteristics. Um, I forget them off the top of my head, but there are 12 characteristics that in the open source community has defined as cloud native. And if you look that up, the, the 12 characteristics of cloud native, um, in, a, in a search, you'll, you'll get the uh, what I'm referring to here. And those are the official definitions if you want to drill down into each. Um, we could probably spend a week teaching cloud native definitions by itself. Sure, sure. Well, that's that's great. So that's a resource that people can, listeners can refer to to learn more. Uh, so final question be for you. For, for somebody who's tasked with migrating a complex legacy system to the cloud, what are you know six or so things that you'd recommend to somebody as a way to get started? Sure. I think I think first and foremost is to get a little bit of a, a better handle as, as your current IT footprint. You need to understand where you're spending all your money and time and people right now because it may not be very efficient. You have to decide what is the low-hanging fruit that could possibly move and start leveraging cloud and automation sooner rather than later. Things like email. It's fairly easy to move to a cloud provider and you can choose your cloud provider because there's many out there that do this. And then you can decide to move other services like maybe some storage or maybe some mobile applications, push them to cloud. You're probably never going to get all of it moved at one time. Um, you probably want to plan on the fact that you're going to have a two to five year journey to do this, depending on the size of your company. And then so the way to really do that is to evaluate each, if you can, each silo or each application business line, as we mentioned earlier. So if you want to talk to the procurement department or your contracting department, they might have three applications. Talk to your engineering department, they may have 20. You've got to decide which applications or workloads are the priority. And then we and then we talk about an entire chapter in the book. There are different techniques, such as redeploy to the cloud, 
maybe you refactor it, which means you totally resize it when you move it to the cloud, or you rewrite the whole thing. Maybe the application gets rewritten in Big Cloud Native. And then I think the, the last technique we use is replace the application. Maybe your uh, human resource application doesn't need to be rewritten. Maybe, maybe there's a cloud provider already out there that has something that does 99% of what you want it to do, and you could just buy it as a software, as a service, and not even have to worry about um, recreating it or moving what you have. You can start clean and fresh, possibly even import your data. So you've got to decide whether you want to replace, resize, or uh, as you say, refactor or redesign it. And so those things have to be done almost per application, per workload. And you're going to come up with a list of 20 to sometimes 200 hmm. priorities. And you've got to decide what, you know, how much budget you have, how much time do you have. Um, and you actually realize when you do this, I would say the average company I work with decides that 15% or so of their applications are not even worth moving. They're just going to let them retire. They're going to either phase them out over time, not going to bother replacing them because they either weren't that much, that important or aren't worth the upgrade. And, and some, was, it's kind of a surprise to me, actually, that 10 to 15% of some of the apps, they don't even bother to replace. They're just not worth it. And they find another way around it from, the, from a business point of view. So, again, lots of options here from cloud native, rewriting the application, all the way to finding a replacement or retiring your applications. Mm. So it's almost an opportunity for some spring cleaning. Oh, absolutely. It's a good way of wording it. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, James, for coming by. Well, thank you.